All right, Matthew chapter 12 is where we're going to be at today in Scripture as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. We're going to be hopefully, prayerfully, making our way through the first 14 verses of uh, this portion of the text this morning. So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat pockets in front of you. If you're a child of technology, you can go on your idle phone or your Satan song, and you can just type in Matthew chapter 12, and you'll be right there. So at verse 1 of Matthew 12, it states this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And so uh, at that time means as Jesus is teaching through this Galilee region. So he's continuing his ministry through that area of northern Israel. Uh, it was a rather agrarian society too. So, so Israel was the land of milk and honey, but the part of northern Israel was, was full of, of wheat fields and, and all these uh, you know, different uh, agricultural kind of things. To this day, there are tons of bananas there. I have no idea why they grow so many bananas, but it's this beautiful, you know, agrarian society, and I think of it a lot like central Illinois, right? So, so for the more intellectual types down in Jerusalem that were, that were living the metropolitan lifestyle, uh, they felt like Galilee, well, they were, they were a little behind the times. They were a bit of the redneck part of Israel. But we know that for those, you know, uh, that are on the other side of I-80, as it were, this may be a similar type of divide. So there was no I-80 actually running through Israel. But you get the idea. You get the point. So here's Jesus. He's walking through these uh, grain fields with his disciples, and he's no doubt teaching them and discussing different things that were taking place. And as they went through, the disciples were running their hands along the top of the grain that was there, and they would, they would pluck off little heads of the wheat kernels. And so as they, they went, they were having snacks, essentially. I mean, who doesn't love a snack with a message? And so these, this snack was like sunflower seeds. So if you're like me, I love to have sunflower seeds, especially at a ball game. And so these guys probably like me had their, their faces just full of the sunflower seeds. Because you're not really eating sunflower seeds unless you eat so many that the inside of your mouth is raw. Okay, I'm the only guy that does that. But the point here is that they were having a snack. And as they went, what we see in verse 1 is it was uh, the Sabbath. Also can be called a Shabbat. Those Words are interchangeable. And so for the Jewish people, the Sabbath was the last day of the week. It began Friday evening at 6 p.m. and went till Saturday evening at 6 p.m. So their days actually would run from evening and through the morning. That, that actually coincides with Genesis uh, chapter 1. As God created things, he said, in the evening and the morning were the first day. So that's the reason why uh, they start their evening, at, uh, they start their new day at 6 p.m., on Friday and then work their way until the next uh, day at 6 p.m. Now then continuing in verse 2, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And so here as they're walking through the grain fields, out pop these Pharisees. For some reason, they're hiding in the grain fields. And, and at least in my mind, maybe I'm just weird, uh, probably am, but I think of the show Hee Haw. Have you ever watched Hee Haw? I think I've missed my generation with these Gen Zers. But for me, on Sunday evenings, we would watch Hee Haw as a family, and there would be the guys who would pop out of the cornfield with the jokes. That's what I think of. it. Here's these Pharisees out of nowhere. They just pop up, and they've got questions for Jesus. And so here they are, and interestingly enough, um, they're upset that these men are out in the grain fields. Uh, meanwhile, 
they're out in the grain fields. So maybe a little bit of hypocrisy taking place with these men as they want to question Jesus. Now then, in verse 3, this is his response to them. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that the Sabbath, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? And yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so Jesus begins his reply to them by saying, have you not read? Now, this is interesting to me because this is what I call sanctified sarcasm. Maybe I like it just because I like sarcasm. It's my sense of humor. I know many of you didn't realize that. But in this case, uh, Jesus is sanctified in his sarcasm. I'm rarely sanctified. I'm usually just sarcastic. What he's saying to them is, have you not read? And I say that's sarcasm on his behalf because these guys' job was to read. They were the Pharisees and the scribes. They spent their days reading, poring over Scripture, pouring through the Jewish commentaries. Their whole career was spent reading, and he says to them, have you not read? Now, the Sabbath is the thing that they're particularly questioning him about, and I want you to understand that the Sabbath day itself is actually not from the law to begin with. It starts all the way back in Genesis, and we see God there at creation. He creates for six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. So this, in a sense, is the creation of the Sabbath day, that, that rest day on the seventh. Now, the law is what finally commemorated the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, this is the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to go back to Exodus 20, uh, picking up in verse 8. This is what Moses writes down there on Mount Sinai. Uh, coming from God, God tells him, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it or made it holy. He set it apart. So in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, this is what commemorated their Sabbath day. Now, if you go back just a few more chapters, though, what you find is God was always all about this Sabbath day, even before then. In Exodus 16, this is where the, the nation has come out of Egypt. They're traveling now towards the Promised Land, and as they went, uh, they were hungry. And so what does God do? But he provides. He provides a bread from heaven. They could go out of their tents in the morning, and here's bread from heaven out there on the ground. It was like a, a heavenly graham cracker dropped off right there on their front porch. And so they walked out, and they said, what is it? And so God let them call it manna, which literally means, what is it? So you've got to love this if you're God. You give them a heavenly graham cracker, and they go, what is it? That's what my kids say whenever we fix them dinner. What is it? But here, here they have it, and so as God provides the manna every day, they were to go out and collect exactly what they needed to eat that particular day. 
And so as they brought in daily what they needed, they weren't to collect what they needed for the next day, but to have enough faith that God would provide for them that day what they needed for that day, with the exception of the sixth day of the week, which they were allowed to go out and actually collect for two days' worth. So on the Sabbath, they could stay home and rest because he allowed them to collect two days' worth of what is it that they brought into the tent. And so you, you see that as God is making it clear, his desire for the Sabbath day was for them to actually have a rest to be able to take a break. Now, as Jesus is being confronted by these Pharisees, I want to point out that what they've accused him of breaking wasn't actually God's law in Exodus 20. But instead, it was their uh, Talmud, or the Mishnah, as they might call it. This is essentially Jewish commentary. They went through the law of Moses, and they wrote down uh, commentaries in their Bible. They had huge volumes. In fact, on the screen, I've got for you the, the volumes of the books that are the commentaries that they made with how to define what the law was trying to explain. What I'm getting at with this is when God said you should do no work on the Sabbath, they said, well, what is work? Define work for us. And so they went and poured through scriptures and, and had their conversations, and they ended up defining 39 different categories for what work actually is. And so as Jesus and his disciples are traveling through the fields of grain, and they've violated some of these laws, these weren't the laws of God, but the laws of men, and they violated four in particular. The first one they, they violated is they were reaping on the Sabbath day on the Sabbath day. As they walked through and they ran their, their hands across the top of the grain, they were saying they're actually harvesting. They're harvesting grain, and so therefore they violated the Talmudic law. Uh, secondly, they were threshing. What they would do in order to get the, the wheat kernel out is they would actually break it in their hands, freeing the, the head of grain from the chaff. The third thing they violated was they were winnowing. In order to blow the chaff away, they would actually like that, and the chaff would fly off, and so therefore they had violated the third thing, they were winnowing. And then finally, they were claiming they were preparing a meal. Now the reality is, if you want to be technical, these disciples actually did violate all of these different rules and regulations. But the problem that Jesus is going to address isn't the violation of what's in the Mishnah or the Talmud. The real issue is um, they had taken the rules and the regulations from man, and they made them more important than what God said. And that's the issue at hand here that Jesus is trying to address. In Mark chapter 7, I'll turn to the right with you just a little bit. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 7, this is what Jesus, as he's addressing people, says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines, or as the law, the commandments of men. And then skipping down to verse 13, he says, Making the word of God of no effect through your own tradition, which you have handed down. So what they had actually done is they'd taken their own uh, commentaries, and they'd made them more important than the word of God itself. Now, I want to be clear on this because I, for one, love Bible commentaries. If you've got a Bible with a commentary at the bottom where it gives little explanations and information, it's awesome. Like, it's really helpful. But it's not the Word of God. So if the commentary actually violates or becomes more important than what God's Word says, that's a major issue. 
And so as Jesus is going to lay this out for these men, what is he going to do to defend himself and defend his actions? He's going to use uh, not his fists, like what we'd like to do in Clark County, like we're ready to punch you in the nose if you're going to come against us, but instead he's going to use the word of God. And he's going to give them a Bible lesson, and what he's going to do is actually go through three different sections of their own Old Testament scriptures. Remember, these guys are the intellects. These, these are the ones that have studied and poured over scriptures. And so he's going to go to three different sections of Old Testament scripture. And a little sidebar, you can actually take the Old Testament and divide it up into four major categories. You've got your law, which is the first five books the Pentateuch, it might be called, or the books of Moses. The books of history, starting with First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Those are the, the history books. And then you've got the books of poetry. Men, I know you love the books of poetry. That's Job and Psalms and Proverbs. And then uh, the prophets is the final one. And it can be divided up into major prophets and minor prophets. So what I like about this is Jesus goes to three of these four major categories in order to address them, stopping them at every turn. And he begins there in verses 3 and 4 with the books of history. He says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? And so he pulls a story out of 1 Samuel chapter 21. And in this spot, David has already been anointed king of all of Israel. He's been anointed by God. The people wanted a king. They didn't like God being their king. And so they said, give us a king. And they picked a guy for themselves, a guy named Saul, who was a head taller than everyone. He looked the part. The problem for Saul is uh, he didn't have the heart for the job. He didn't actually love people. He loved himself. And so God said, look, I'm going to remove Saul I'm going to pick a king for myself. And so he chooses David as uh, his king, the one he wanted to appoint. And so at this point in chapter 21, David is now on the run, running away from Saul. Because you know, if you're going to appoint a new king, the guy that's really not going to like it is the old king. He was a little bit upset that there was a new guy going to be in charge soon. And so David is now on the run, fleeing from the, the uh, armies of all of Israel. And as he and his band of merry men were running away, they're, they're hungry. They find themselves at the tabernacle in an area called Nob, and they go to the priest, and he says, look, we're starving. Give us something to eat. And the only thing the priest had was the showbread. And so every day they would prepare a fresh batch of bread, and they would present it there before the Lord. And it was the Lord's bread the following day, when it's day-old bread, it could be eaten by the priests, but only for the priests. And so as David and his men arrive, there's only the showbread there. It was actually there for God, the piping hot out of the oven like the Subway oven's bread. And David says, give us something to eat. And what the priest does is he actually goes and does what is not lawful. He gives the bread to these men, many of them not even Israelites, because... What Jesus is trying to drive at is that human need always supersedes rules and regulations. The law of God was not to, to see men out on the outside starving to death, but instead to provide for people and to take care of people. And so that's what Jesus is trying to drive home with this story. The second thing that I find interesting, and it's a little more obscure, is that what I just shared with you is David was already anointed king. By God. God recognized him as the king of Israel. And so if he's the king, does he have any 
business begging for bread? Absolutely not. He never should have been in this spot in the first place in God's eyes. And so now here we have in this story, we've got Jesus anointed by God as king. And yet, where is he at? He's out in the farmer's fields. He's gleaning for a snack because they're hungry. Do you understand that what God actually uh, had the farmers do is they would leave the corners and the edges of their field uh, for the poor? This was his idea of a, of a welfare, welfare program. If you farmed your field, you only left the corners and the edges for the poor and the travelers that would come by that were hungry and needed a bite to eat. So here's Jesus actually eating with the poor because he's not recognized as the king that God had established. He never should have been here either. Now then the second example he gives is out of the law. He goes in verse 5 and says, Or have you not read, there's your sarcasm again, in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? And yet I say to you that there is one who is greater than the temple. And so what Jesus does is he takes them back to Numbers chapter 28, and every day they're in the temple, they were to have daily sacrifices. That a lamb would be sacrificed every day and every day and every day, except for the Sabbath day. And what we see there in Numbers 28, for the sake of time, we won't go through that, but is that they would actually sacrifice two lambs. They would sacrifice two instead of the one. They would have twice as much grain offering to be offered to the Lord. What Jesus is saying is that on the Sabbath, the priests don't get a day off. They're working twice as hard. So have they therefore profaned the Sabbath? The Sabbath says you're supposed to take a day off, but these guys are working twice as hard to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Are they guilty? And they had no answer to this question. And the reality is they were doing the work of the Lord as if unto the Lord. So the point wasn't for them to, to work or not work, but instead to work, we talked about it last week, from a place of rest, from a place of, of, of out of his love and his grace. And this is why they were able to sacrifice twice as much and, uh, for the good of the, the group of the community. Now then finally he goes to uh, verse 7. This He's going to pull out of the uh, book of the prophets. This is out of Hosea. He says, but... If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. And so Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, this is where he's going to pull this out of, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What they had missed all the way around is that God was far less interested in the rules and in the law as he was in them being merciful. Jesus only said a few different things to the men that were following him. Go and learn this. By the way, if Jesus says go and learn it, I'd suggest you go and learn it. He said repeatedly, go and learn mercy. Go and learn what it means to be merciful to people. Before you get all pinned up with your religious trappings and your traditions, go and learn first to be merciful. And so because they were so tied up in the law and the rules and the regulations and the burdens, it, what it really was is it was, it was a burden around their neck. And so therefore they had no rest. This is why in Hebrews chapter 4, I put it up there on the screen for if you wanted to follow along, but in uh, Hebrews 4 verse 9, the writer writes to a group of people, by the way, Hebrews is written to uh, Jewish Christians. 
Jews that had been, been converted into Christianity, so they came out of a life of tradition and rules, and now this is what the writer writes. He says, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So what the writer's trying to communicate is, is when they were so excited to first come to know Jesus as Jewish Christians, they had now uh, rescinded. They'd gone back to their rules and their regulations. They, they felt like they needed more pressure, I guess, put on them from God. And the reality is when you uh, put all this upon yourself, there is no longer a rest. There's no more joy. There's no more excitement to get to come and do church for them because it became all about the process and what was missing out of the process was the people it was all about religion and there was no relationship that's really what jesus is trying to communicate they've forgotten all about mercy which by the way uh, god's law was always about mercy in the first place that in his love he actually gave the law to protect them to keep them safe and we're going to continue more on this topic as we look at what, what is the Sabbath. And so I want to just ask this question. This is one at least I think I've asked in church before, or asked myself maybe rhetorically, is what then do we do about the Sabbath? Like, all oh, this is great, but what is all this Sabbath stuff? What does it mean? And so for that, we're going to take a little bit of a trip here. We're going to be like Super Tramp. We're going to take the long way home. So just hang on for a second. The Jewish Sabbath was instituted by God prior to Jesus even being on the earth. Not Jesus existing. He existed before time. But before he was on the earth, there was a Jewish Sabbath. We can all agree upon that. And the reason God established the Jewish Sabbath was so that, for one, it would set them apart from the nations. So all the nations in all the known world worked seven days a week. They didn't know what else to do. Unless you were rich, you just worked. You worked every day. There were no days off. And so imagine, now there's a group of people. They've moved into this promised land given to them by God, and they don't work seven days a week. They work six days a week, and they take an entire day off. That's crazy. And yet their God still continues to provide for them. Now God gave this to the Jewish people as a gift, but not to set them apart so they could have their nose up in the air like, hey, we're awesome, you're not because you've got to work seven days, we've only got to work six, but instead to be attractive to the nations around so they would wonder, what is it about your God that's so much different than our God that you get a day off or our God doesn't give us squat? So why is it our little G-God should even be followed? That's the point. And so for the Jewish people, they were to be a set-apart nation that the nations all around them would look and go, we want to know more about this Yahweh, this Elohim they speak of. We want to know him more. We want to come into a relationship with him where we can have a rest as well. Now, interestingly enough, as God gave them, as a, as a blessing, as a merciful blessing, gave them a Sabbath rest day, the, the scriptures actually tell us he wanted to do more than that. He wanted to give them a year of rest every six years. So every six years, they were supposed to work, and then on the seventh, they were just supposed to take an entire year off. It was called a Sabbath year. And then every 50 years, they actually got two years off. 
Amazing. And God said, look, if you'll have enough faith to believe in me, I'm going to provide for you for an entire year off the ground if you just give it a rest. Now, do you uh, know that in 490 years that the kingdom was together, uh, how many years they took a Sabbath rest? I'll give you a little hint. It's zero. They never one time in 490 years had enough faith to trust God in this, to let him provide for them on a Sabbath year. Which is why when Jeremiah was writing, as they're getting ready to be taken off into captivity by Babylon, God said, I'm going to take back the 70 years of Sabbath rests away from you. They were in Babylon for 70 years because 7 divided by 490 is 70. God said, look, if you won't give the land a rest, I'm going to take it for the land myself. And so he has them taken off into captivity, and now here they are. That They now get it, right? There's a, there's a Sabbath rest that God was willing to give, but God never offered a Sabbath year after that. The real issue for the people was they did not have enough faith to believe what God said he was going to do. Now, when we look at the law, again, for New Testament Christians, it's confusing. What are we supposed to do? What are we not supposed to do? There's all these weird rules. There's 613 commandments. I don't know, am I supposed to eat a camel, not eat a camel? That doesn't seem great. How many times should I wash my hands? We're not sure. Uh, but definitely before you prepare a meal, or if you're, if you're my kids, at least every other time you go to the bathroom. Like, these are the rules we think are good. That was a joke. It's okay. They wash their hands, mostly. Um, so, so the law can be divided up into two portions. The ceremonial portion, this is your feasts and all the hand washings and all those things, that falls in the ceremonial portion of the law. And the other portion is the, the moral portion of the law. This is like the, the top ten list, the Exodus 20. These are the moral things. And what we find is that Jesus says in Matthew 5, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And what he meant by that, and they didn't understand, and, and oftentimes I think we miss this too, is he was saying that in him is actually the complete and total fulfillment of the law. And so as he was buried there, after his experience on the cross, as he's buried, so too were the ceremonial portions of the law. All that gets buried with him. We don't have to honor all these feasts and all these, you know, these rules and regulations. In fact, he would even go so far to tell the Apostle Peter, look, when it comes to food, don't call something unclean that I've made clean. And so, praise the Lord, we can now eat bacon. Thank you, Jesus, for bacon. But the, the other thing that he's doing now is as he's resurrected, we now have the opportunity to live out the law from not the outside, but from within. So as he comes to dwell within each of you as you accept Jesus as your Savior, that the law actually gets lived out in your daily life. So these moral portions that we can all agree are, are good ideas, we get to live these things out from the inside out instead of from the outside in. This is the transformative power of Christ. Now then, in Romans chapter 14, what the Apostle Paul says in regards to the a Sabbath day, for the New Testament Christians, they would actually celebrate Sunday instead of Saturday because this was the day that Christ was raised from the dead. And so they took the first day of the week and would celebrate it. But what Paul says in Romans 14 is that, uh, I'll just go there and read it instead of butchering the text. I was going to butcher it, but I decided to pull back. 
Uh, verse 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced by his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he who gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. And so what Paul was trying to communicate is, look, whatever day you decide to give it to the Lord, uh, give it to him. And for him, he said, I esteem every day the same. So every day is the Lord's day for the Apostle Paul. I would encourage you when you get up, make every day the day for the Lord. Today's the day. And so this is how Paul's saying for New Testament Christians, we can and should and ought to live, but no longer should we be bogged down with all the have-tos that were in the law. The law was perfect at what it did. It pointed out the fact that we need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. But the reality is of accepting Jesus, now the law gets to become a get-to instead of a have-to. I get to get up every day and fulfill what the law says, and it's not an obligation anymore. It's just, it just becomes part of who we are, and it flows out of us. And what Jesus is trying to communicate, and, and he says it in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, I put it up there on the screen for you, that, that the Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. What he's getting at there is that the Sabbath day, where we get to come together and we get to just rest in him and reflect on him, this wasn't made for Jesus, it was made for us. You see, this is a part of mercy. He wants to be merciful and give you the opportunity to get to be in relationship with him. He, he's actually saying, I want you to have a rest because it's good for you, not because it's good for me. Not because I'm some egomaniac that just needs you to worship me, but it's because this is healthy and good for you. This is how you get yourself in a good place. I want you to have this as a gift from me. We were created in his image a body, soul, and spirit, as he is a God the Father, the Son, and the, and the Holy Spirit. Three, they're into one. We are a, a triune in and of ourselves. And so th what I'm saying by that is, where one suffers, all suffer. So if you've ever been in a spot of physical pain, you can attest to this, that when you're suffering physically, emotionally, what happens? You suffer, right? And when you suffer emotionally, what happens spiritually? you suffer. Now, flip that around. When you're in emotional pain and struggle, what happens physically? I, I can't go. I'm, I'm suffering physically. And then what's your spiritual life look like? It's non-existent. And so the, the getting this right looks like saying, Lord, I want to set this time apart for you because I can't control all these things around me, but I, I can do this thing. I can serve you and honor you this morning. Get the spiritual component right. Now, I would, I would challenge you in that because if you do that, if you can get the spiritual part right, start off daily if you can. This is why we push the Bible study plan, eight or ten minutes a day. What you find is amazingly, uh, emotionally, things start to fall into place. And then, and then physically, when you feel better emotionally, physically, you feel better. And as soon as you start down this path, no doubt what happens is, uh, what, it, it, it's hard to get out of bed. I don't feel like reading today. I can't concentrate. Why? Because you're coming under the attack of the enemy who knows your weak spots. 
He knows that you're a triune Godhead. And if I can attack you physically in this place or emotionally in this place, you'll have no connection spiritually. And so this is really ultimately what the Sabbath is all about. Now, what then should we do uh, with the Sabbath? Paul's encouragement here is to take a day and set it aside at the very least for the Lord and use Jesus even as an example. What we notice is that even Jesus goes to church. Pick up with me in verse 9. Now, he departed from there, and he went to their synagogue. I'll take a little sidebar really quickly. Did you notice what he said that he departed and went to uh, their synagogue? About the time this becomes uh, theirs or our church, we got a problem. <laughs> this needs to be Jesus's. First and foremost, this wasn't God's synagogue. He departs and goes to their synagogue. But my real point I'm trying to drive home with this is just like God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was pooped. God wasn't wiped out. I want you to understand that about the text. As he created the heavens and the earth just by speaking. He didn't get to day number seven and go, whoa, I am exhausted. I mean, creating elephants. Do you have any idea how hard it is to create an elephant? or dinosaurs, and then they're going to argue about where dinosaurs came from anyway. This is exhausting. I need a day off. God didn't say that. He didn't do that. He did that instead as an example because he knew his creation needed it. In the same way, here's Jesus. He's going on the Sabbath day to the synagogue. He's the only person alive who didn't actually need to go to the synagogue. It was all about him anyway. And yet he, by example, goes daily or, or every week on Sabbath like a good Jewish male to the synagogue and continuing on, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? And then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay a hold of it and lift it out. How much more value then is there is, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And so there was a man sitting there in, the, in a church on their Sabbath day in their synagogue, and he had a hand that was withered. The Greek word there is zeros. It means literally to be dried up. His hand was shriveled up. He was incapacitated. He could not use it at all. And so Jesus looks upon this man, and then remember, they're an agrarian society, so he immediately goes back to a farm story. He says, now, now who among you, if you have a sheep, and your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would you not go and rescue the sheep out of the, the pit? So all of them would agree, of course, we're going to rescue our sheep for several reasons. One, because they cared for the animal. But two, because this is their livelihood. They're going to make sure they take care of how they pay the bills. And so they're going to rescue the sheep on a Sabbath. It, it only makes sense to them. And, and so Jesus goes on to verse 12 to say, look, aren't people of more value than animals. Now in that day and age, they would have understood that very clearly. Yes, people have more value than animals. Today in 2021, we struggle with that idea. Let me just encourage you that people are of more value than animals, even ones that are not born. We struggle with that idea, that concept, that people are of more value, but they most certainly are. 
Now, that's not to say, if you're an animal lover, that animals aren't important. Right? We talked about this in my household this week as baby Madeline was yelling at Zeke the golden doodle with her finger pointed in his face telling him what to do. Look, Proverbs says that a righteous man is kind to animals. So stop pointing your finger in Zeke's face and taking his toy away. So animals, we are to treat animals kindly. That's a, a, an indication that we're a righteous man. Probably tells me I shouldn't kick him when he won't go outside. But nevertheless, there we have it, that, that a righteous man is kind to animals, and yet they are not to be held in higher regard than human beings. Now then, for this man, he now becomes the subject of everyone's attention. You can imagine, he's sitting here in the synagogue, probably wanting to not be noticed, especially for his physical handicap that he's gone around with with who knows how many years. So he's got this handicap, and what happens is he becomes the center of everyone's attention. Now, you, if you've ever struggled with any kind of physical malady or, or, or you know, maybe there's other things you've struggled with, you know the one thing you want to do when you go to church is not be called out. This man is being called out now because he, and he feels less than, he feels marred, he feels dried up, and yet now all the attention is on him. And what's Jesus say? Stretch out your hand. Really? Like, as cruel as you could possibly be, you want me to do the one thing you know that I cannot do? You want me to stretch out my hand? Like, that's got to be the feeling that he's got going on inside. And yet, what we find is, is a lack of faith makes any request of God seem impossible. To him, this had to be completely and utterly impossible. Don't you think if I could have stretched my hand that I would have? And so this is what's taking place in his heart. And I want to tell you that in this story, I think there's two different heart conditions happening. You've got the, the, the man who in his heart, he's brokenhearted. Right? The Lord's asked him to do the one thing he can't do in front of everybody. And then on the other side, you've got the Pharisees. And in their heart, they are looking to, what do we see in verse 14? Plot to kill. They want to, because of their rules and their regulations and their holy huddle that they've got together, they want to kill Jesus. And so they're trying to corner him and, and pin him in. And I want to go just one place. I didn't put it on the notes because I didn't think of it until late. But James chapter 3. When we think about the different wisdoms that happen in the world. James shares with us two different kinds of wisdom, one that comes from the earth and one that comes from above. And I want to share this with you because what the Pharisees have is they have wisdom, but not of God of this world. Who is wise and has understanding among you? Verse 13. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But, in verse 14, if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, and where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil are there. And so here's men who are divided. They want to bring about confusion and self-seeking. And what James says is that this is demonic. It's precisely what they're bringing to the table. And now then we flip over to the... To the uh, next verses, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now that verse 18, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
I love the nearly inspired version of this verse, the NIV. It, it says that peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. And so on the flip side of this story, you've got these men who've got this evil, self-seeking heart, and then you've got Jesus who looks upon this situation and he tells this man, stretch out your hand. And what Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, is she's been told that she's going to give birth to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords. She says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And so what I want to share with you that if God is calling, he is also at the same time enabling you. So whatever he's called you to do, at the same time, he is going to enable you to do the thing that he's calling you to stretch yourself out in and to have faith in in order to do. Now, for uh, this man, he now has to, to reckon with this, that can God's word actually be powerful enough to tell me to stretch out my hand? Uh, I, I like this other translation of Luke one thirty seven that no word of God is without power. There is no word that God has spoken that does not have power behind it, which is why, by the way, we study through the Bible verse by verse. It's not to say there aren't other ways to study through the word. There most certainly are. But for me, this is where the power lies. So I could certainly get up in front of you, and I look, remember, I'm Southern Baptist. So there's no problem for me to stand here, and I can call down the fires from heaven. For it's a terrible thing to stand before the true and living God. And we could have that whole conversation. And you might come away thinking, wow, that's, that was powerful today. But I want to tell you, those are my words. These are God's words. This is powerful. This changes lives. This has changed me from the inside out, from the man that I used to be to the man that I, I'm certainly not there yet. But the man I'm hoping to someday be, there is power that exists in the word of God, and that's why we study through the scriptures. And so the question becomes to each of us, what is withered? What is dry? What is it you're convinced in your life it cannot breathe again? That there is no way that this thing could ever be brought back to life. What thing are you holding on to today that you're so convinced that he cannot stretch out? There's no way that he can possibly have an effect in this area of my life. And the question is, do you have enough faith to let him? Do you have enough faith to let him stretch that thing out that you are so convinced that he cannot? Because I can assure you, based on the power that is in the word of God, he most certainly can. And so, Father, thank you. And I praise you for your word which is always true and is always powerful. Lord, today as we get to gather together, there, there are heavy hearts that are struggling with things that are dried up and that feel like that they cannot have any life ever breathed into them again. They feel uh, zeros, dry in the Greek. And yet your command to this man is the same command you give us today, stretch out your hand. And what we saw is that it was as whole as the other one. 
I love in Luke's account, he even says, stretch out your right hand. Wanting to be very clear that it's the hand of strength and power that doesn't feel strong and doesn't feel powerful anymore. And yet you look at it and you say, I want power to be restored. I want strength to be restored. I want you to be made whole again. So Father, thank you so much for this story. Thank you that as we study through what Sabbath thing looks like and doesn't look like, that, that you want to give us a day of rest because you love us, because you want to be merciful towards us, and yet we get to rest in you, that in you rest is complete, that it doesn't matter how many days we go to church, if we don't have peace, there is no rest. If we don't have mercy, we cannot receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so, Father, we want to receive your mercy. We want to receive your rest. Thank you so much for the way you love us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand for a closing song?
It never runs out on me Your love never fails It never gives up It never runs out on me Your love And the church says, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for coming out on a cold day when it would have been easy to stay in bed. Uh, God bless you guys. And let me just challenge you if there's things you know, you're dealing with that feel dried up, have the faith to just give it a shot, to just see what he might do with the Sabbath day, the Sabbath week, or the Sabbath year that you might be able to give it to him, what kind of thing he's going to bring life to. God bless you guys. I'm up front for prayer.